Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. Lisa Anderson here with you. And as I often like to do, a little preview of what's coming up. Later on for our inbox, we have a girl who works a job where she has to spend a lot of time with men and has been told by some friends that it's not wise to be unsupervised with male colleagues. And she's like, okay, well, how do I navigate that space? So one of our counselors is going to weigh in. And then for our culture segment, Dana Shea is a relationship and marriage coach and host of the podcast Real Relationship Talk. And she's going to join us to share about things that she wished she knew before getting married. So stay tuned for that. Okay, for our roundtable today, we are going to tackle a topic that was suggested by one of you listeners on social media. And thanks to uh, summer intern Becca, she is marshalling a lot of the feedback that we're getting on social this summer, which is great, <laughs> and, uh, and ca- encapsulating it for us. So we love hearing from you. So keep reaching out, whether it's on social or at editor at boundless.org. But we had to bring in, you know, the big guns, people who have experience in this. And so we have got Roger and Diane Angolia back. Hey, y'all. Hey, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Um, Married. In fact, sorry, Diane, because we had Roger on recently without you. But we had to give him some time just to talk about you instead of with you. (laughs) That's scary. (laughs) That was a long conversation. No, it was okay. (laughs) It was okay. But um, these two have been married. Okay, is it almost 45 years? Now 45? Where, Where are you at? 45 in a couple months. Okay, so that's good. That's a milestone. Mm-hmm. So very fun. We also have Gabriel and Hannah Nymeyer here. Hey <laughs> I almost there. called Hannah by her here. maiden name. <laughs> um, yes, and you guys have not been married 45 years. Correct. But how long? At least 45 days. How, yes, how yeah, almost 10 months. Uh-huh. It'll be 10 months at the end of this month. Yay. So, yeah. Okay, so I'm sure you're going, are you going to like the Maldives for your first anniversary? I'm sure you have it planned, right? Yeah, <laughs> totally. We're going to do this whole tour of Europe. Yes. Like, you know. That's as you should, you know, because yeah. what, what better way to spend the millions that you get from being social media influencers and whatever. So, 100%. no, just kidding. Today, you guys, we're going to talk about boundaries during engagement. This is actually part one of a two-part discussion, and as many of you know, Roger and Diane counsel so many soon-to-be-married couples, uh, helping them kind of launch into marriage with hopefully some biblical wisdom and some confidence (laughs) in that space and all of that. And then obviously, Gabriel and Hannah have just lived it. And so I'm going to start out by just kind of a general question here. What Really, when we talk about boundaries, I mean, first of all, everyone's going to be like, oh, my goodness, we've got to talk about sexual boundaries. Okay, (laughs) good. We will. Um, But there are a lot of different kind of boundaries where maybe you can tread. And, you know, we all we've had conversations here at Boundless about relationships with your family, um, pulling away, leaving and cleaving. You know, there are boundary issues there. So we're going to touch on it all. But what are some of the most common struggles that you see? How have you seen people talking about them, playing out as far as when they're like, we are now engaged and for some reason, X, Y, Z, fill in the blank, has become more difficult. We've started fighting more about it. It's begun all of a sudden we realize that we don't agree on this issue. What are you seeing people say or, you know, for yourselves also? I think what ends up happening is once you're engaged, you're now part of another family. Mm -hmm. And how that mother-in-law, father-in-law now affect them. Mm -hmm. And you begin to see how much power does that in-law have over 
that man or that woman. And because of the engagement, it bumps it up with the in-laws because now they're realizing I'm no longer going to have my baby boy. I'm no <laughs> longer going to have my little girl. And there's a volume that gets turned up that was not there when it was just during a dating. And then all of a sudden there's conflict between mm -hmm. the two of them. But that's what we always do. But that's my mom. She loves me. Mm -hmm. That's my dad. That's how he behaves. So you can see if they don't start working on those issues now, it's not going to help any once they step into I do. And mm -hmm. then you say, I do what? I don't, I don't know. We're just going to keep going like we are. Mm -hmm. And it causes great conflict. It's funny because it reminds me of um, Ted Cunningham, who's a pastor and an author, and we've had him on Boundless before, has, has said before that when he does weddings, one time he did one and a father of the bride kind of said up at the altar, well, you know, I don't really consider that we're giving our daughter away. I don't know. I guess he just decided to go off script. He's like, we're not really giving our daughter away. We're just inviting another son into our family. And I know his sentiment was good, but Ted actually stopped and was like, no, actually, you are giving your daughter away. <laughs> That's the meaning of leaving and cleaving. And it's not, you're not just taking another little chick in the hen house here, <laughs> getting another kid. You got to let go. And so, but it is true. A lot of parents, I mean, you two can speak as parents of mm -hmm. sometimes it's hard to let go and you assume that you're normal as everyone's normal mm -hmm. and that's how you're going to live. Well, and they okay. feel, these parents feel that they have the right to speak into the marriage or into the relationship yeah. and that right is gone you are now stepping outside of that realm and you're no longer the authority in their lives and that's a tough boundary that either the man has to set with the in-laws or the woman has mm -hmm. to set with her in-laws to say no a line is drawn and it's the two of us now and if we need you we'll give you a call yeah and that's a hard break Okay, Hannah and Gabriel, weigh in on this. So we'll, we'll tell both of your parents to not listen to this episode because I want you to kind of give your perspective on that. Was that tricky? Was that like a wake-up call of like, oh, I'm not really sure, or I didn't realize that we would actually have to have conversations about in-laws? One of the things that we did that was really helpful, because Hannah and I dated long distance, and so her family's in Texas, mine's in Michigan, so that we had opportunities to talk about, hey, this is pretty much how it goes before we interact with, you know, my dad or my mom or my sister or whoever. Um, and I found that that was super helpful. But there's definitely, a, call it a learning curve of how to interact with your new family. Yeah, I would agree. I think right when you get engaged, everything changes because you're like, we're getting married. Oh, my word, we can plan for our lives. But then also nothing changes because you're still dating and all of the same physical and spiritual, maybe not as much emotional, but a lot of the boundaries are still the same because you're not married. Mm -hmm. um, I think there was a lot of time that we had some like social coaching, I guess, about our families. Like we got to talk about it in depth. And I think even for my family in particular, uh, the time of engagement was a really good time for my parents to prepare mm -hmm. for me to leave and cleave. Mm -hmm. My parents and I are really close. And so I lived at home a little bit when we were engaged. And I think that was a really sweet time for us to, yeah, kind of spend those last moments um, as me with me as a single girl mm -hmm. um, living with them. So it was a good transition, I think. You know, for Diane and I, it's kind of interesting that um, I came from a family that my parents were the kind of people that said, you know, we're here if you need us. Uh, and they were really excited because uh, Diane, as a, a future daughter-in-law to them in that engagement time, they were so ecstatic because of who she was, who she is. Mm -hmm. um, and the interesting thing was Diane's parents were quite the opposite. 
they're very, very strong, very controlling, that kind of thing. So we had to begin, Diane and I had to have those discussions to begin to decide how are we going to set up the boundaries for our relationship once we're married. And then, you you know, you think, and then someday we want to have kids and all that. What are we going to do in terms of how your parents will want to control our lives uh, versus how my parents will actually stay totally separate? So it was a, a long source of conflict as well as uh, discussion as to how we would pursue it. Okay, one, uh, actually two other little areas I want to touch on before we get into the topic of sex um are Wait, what did you what, say i said <laughs> it's not, you can't really speak it aloud on a christian podcast yeah. no um you can I, spell it though. i want you yeah. guys to speak to boundaries again this is a relationship one with friends because mm-hmm. a lot of people get really frustrated with you're just asking me to like dump all my friends and how are we going to maintain friendships and you don't even like half of my friends or whatever so what is once you decide you're engaged you're going to move towards marriage how you know and we've talked here at boundless before about the scripture that talks about taking that year off of like getting to know your spouse and mm-hmm. being like okay you're not gonna I mean, in scripture, go to war, but, you know, everyone else apply as you will. Um, So friendship and then also finances, Mm -hmm. you know, some boundary issues of, I mean, there are people, Christians nowadays, straight up asking for prenups. There are people who are like, well, let's have two separate accounts because we need to keep yours, mine and ours. Um, Just thoughts on that of ways. um, In fact, uh, Hannah and Gabriel, maybe you can weigh in just on like, you know, in the recent past, what did that look for you as you started thinking of joining all these things? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I thought much about Gabriel's spending habits when we were dating. Mm-hmm. I probably <laughs> should have, but I just, I didn't she think definitely Well, clearly he's not spending money on breakfast. We heard <laughs> yeah, that. clearly Before not. we started taping, we were talking about what we had for breakfast <laughs> and he didn't have anything. So that's very sad. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So once we got engaged, um, that definitely became a topic of conversation, um, what we would do financially. And from the get-go, I think it was pretty clear that we were going to combine our accounts uh, once we got married and just looked at our spending habits. And he's more of a a big spender. I'm more of an everyday spender. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we're both savers in different ways, if that makes sense. Yeah, there was one example. I (sighs) came home (laughs) from work and I was like, hey, you know, I just got this Apple Watch. And she goes, you just got an Apple Watch <laughs> just happened like to get time. it. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. Like I'd been thinking about it. Like it wasn't like out of the blue. She goes, well, you hadn't told me, mm-hmm. right? And so this is one of those things that your finances start the process of getting joined while you're engaged, whether or yeah. not you're sharing a bank account, right? And it was one of those relational touch points for us where we were like, uh, at least for me, I felt like, oh, I, I actually need to communicate this. Yeah, and then I was like, are you just going to buy Apple Watches when we're married? Like, out of the blue. And I mean, it was much more emotional than I should have responded. Okay. But, yeah, that's yeah. good. I mean, is that something you guys, Roger and Diane, have to be pretty hard line on with couples is helping them understand the need for a different framework? Yeah, and you know, we've had relationships where the husband um, says the money, because I do the bills, is mine. And then I will dole out what I think you should have. Yeah. And in this particular situation, he had the credit card and he would give her a little envelope with cash in it. This mm-hmm. is your budget. And it was like groceries, clothes, gifts. Um, and she came home one day and there was a tarp 
in the corner over something, and she pulled off the tarp, and it was a motorcycle that he had purchased. <laughs> oh, okay. But she couldn't have money to go buy a new dress. Mm -hmm. And so the conflict immediately was, this is mine, mm -hmm. and it's not yours, and I will give to you what I think you need. And the, the contention just grew and grew, yeah. and especially mm -hmm. when you threw a child mm -hmm. in there. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like breaking down the natural boundaries that we have when we say, this is mine, this is yours, that's the way we've lived. Now we're engaged, and we have to begin to transition to this idea of this is ours. I know Diane had a hard time in accepting the fact that as a stay-at-home mom, for example, it was, I was out working every day, so it was my money, and I was handling the budget, when in reality, I was going, what, what in the heck are you thinking, mm -hmm. when really it doesn't matter what is being put into the pot, whether it's from you or if it's from me, it's our pot. Mm -hmm. And so to have those discussions before marriage and yeah. not having separate accounts, and like, I'm, I'm a great proponent of that. Get away from the yours versus mine and, hey, I make this much and so I'll ha handle the, mm -hmm. the, the mortgage and you handle these things. You need to get to this place where we are operating as a unity so that what is yours is mine and what is mine is yours and not how some people phrase it. What is yours is mine yeah. and what is mine is mine. You've you know, got to get away from that mentality. We've actually seen pilfering as well in, in a situation yeah. where there was a, a very clear budget, but she wanted more than what was there. So she would actually pilfer. It, she would take what was here and then go buy and then hide it in the closet. Mm -hmm. And then she'd wait like two days, put it on. Is that new? And her answer was, oh, no, it's oh not. Word. It's not new. Yeah. But it's that idea of transparency mm -hmm. in who's spending and how much are you spending and on what are you spending. Yeah. So it's like, I want to buy him a gift. So we had like this amount. I could spend like $100 without ever telling him what I'm spending it on because it's a gift. I don't mm -hmm. want to say, hey, I'm going to buy an Apple Watch. And, <laughs> um, so I had this freedom to be able to go buy him a gift. And if it was going to be more than that, hey, here's the 100 that I'm going to spend on the gift. But your gift costs a little more than that. But yeah. we could talk about it. And yeah. that way there's transparency in the finances. Sure. And we had to have that in the very beginning of our relationship because we actually bought our first home before we were married. Okay. So we were already setting up boundaries on how we were going to deal with finances and all that because we had moved to a level that is not so common and that most people will go out and rent an apartment or rent a home or something. We were actually purchasing uh, our first home. Uh, we actually purchased it a month before we were married. Yeah. So this was a, a, a big important issue to get through those the stigmas of mine versus ours. Okay. Well, that's a good segue because I want to talk about the physical, which is kind of like what everyone would assume when we talk about boundaries during engagement. And really, Roger, there are a lot of people that would immediately think, oh, you guys purchased a home together. So clearly you moved in together. You were living together. This is kind of how it played out. And I think that's where a lot of people are today because the whole idea of engagement, as Hannah said, it sets up. It, it really is a, it's a different stage. And everyone knows that in their heads. You know, now you're talking about this is a real thing. We're moving towards this, whatever. And a lot of people either make assumptions of where you can go um, physically, whatever, uh, in that phase, or they white knuckle it and assume, okay, well, we're not going to, but it's, you know, by the skin of our teeth or whatever. And it seems like they're, you know, it becomes a real struggle. And so 
let's talk about this a little bit. And I want to start out by saying, you know, Hannah and Gabriel, maybe you can speak to this. Do you think, did you guys and do a lot of your peers, when you start dating, have this conversation about boundaries? And does that help set you up for moving into engagement? And did anything change there? Or did you have to like redraw some lines, have additional conversations, be like, (laughs) okay, this is the reality of where this is? I mean, obviously, Gabriel alluded to the fact that you were long distance. Uh, That helps some, let's be honest. But not all the time. So what did that look like? Yeah, we definitely had to redraw some boundary lines when we got engaged because, yeah, you get into this mindset of like, we're going to be married in a few months and and you love this person and you want to spend the rest of your life with them. So obviously uh, it's easier to push the physical boundary lines than as compared when you're just dating. So we definitely had to have those conversations and yeah, long distance. Give us a practical example of what did it look like to redraw some lines or reaffirm a few things. Yeah, yeah. We had had conversations in the past. Maybe you can help with this, Gabriel. But like for us specifically, hanging out in a car too long after we had gone out to dinner or gone out on a date wasn't necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. The excuses just get easier to make. Yeah. Right. And you have to go back to we're not just dating to get to know each other. We're dating and now engaged to get married. And we want a good foundation for where we're going, mm-hmm. right? And so this example, right? It's easy to hang out in a car. It's easy to, you know, instead of Hannah lived with three or four other gals in a house and instead of going up and hanging out, you know, in her room with the door open even, right? Hey, let's be intentional about hanging out with other people. Mm-hmm. When we, you know, when I come down to Texas, let's find your friends. I'll hang out with them. We'll get away a little bit, you know, we'll get grab coffee and stuff. But the more time that you can spend in a group setting and get to know that person there, right, how much richer does that make the the relationship and the friendships? Because mm-hmm. so many of Hannah's friends are now good friends of mine mm. because we were like, we want to be the, the fun couple, right? Mm-hmm. We want to be the couple that people don't feel weird around, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so yeah. all around this idea of what kind of foundation am I building when I say my vows and and walk into marriage? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, I mean, clarify for us, because a lot of people will say, okay, but in engagement, it really ramps up. Because for example, now we're doing premarital, we're talking about very intimate things. It's hard, like what, are we just supposed to like show up after the wedding day and be like, anyway, four months ago when we talked about this, you know, it's, it's hard. People will say like, it's hard for me to even think about that. You know, it's kind of like a moving train or Mm -hmm. whatever. So what does that look like? I mean, you would naturally spend more alone time, probably even weird stuff like doing wedding prep or whatever, you know, having to make a lot of decisions. So was it hard to kind of say, okay, I mean, we are, we are alone or we have to budget this time alone or whatever and even go in there in some aspects yeah that was i mean it's definitely difficult i'm not going to be um the person to say that it's easy at all and i think something that we said a lot which is kind of funny we said it to each other when we really felt like maybe we were pushing physical boundaries we would encourage each other and say engaged ain't married Mm -hmm. like and it it was kind of a funny thing and our, our family ended up making fun of us for it. Like, are you guys getting married? And we're like, yes, we're just trying to really draw that line of engaged, ain't married. Mm-hmm. It, you know, intimacy must always and only follow commitment. And mm-hmm. yeah, and we obviously did spend a lot more time alone because we were, you know, yeah, wedding prep and 
preparing for life, looking for apartments and things like that. Yeah. Um, so it definitely wasn't easy, but. Well, you guys, thanks for sharing your thoughts on this important topic. We're going to come back next week and continue this conversation on having good boundaries during engagement. Have you ever felt like the world's a jury and you're on trial? All right, folks. Well, for today's culture segment, you know, I often love to tout people that we find out and about who are those few steps ahead in whatever journey you may be in, whether that's in faith or maybe it's in just the space of adulting. So maybe in career or having managed their finances or just doing life. And sometimes it's in relationships, including uh, dating and even marriage prep. And so today I have the opportunity to introduce you to Dana Shea, and she is a number of things, including a campus pastor at New Life Church in Virginia. She's also a podcast host, uh, hosting uh, the show that is actually called Real Relationship Talk, and she speaks and she blogs. She's married to Sean. They have four kids, uh, live in Virginia. Dana, welcome to The Boundless Show. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. I'm really excited to be here today. Well, this is really fun for us because, again, it's kind of like we always like to assume that we're just sitting in a living room with someone just like we would do with anyone from our church that we'd invite over and be like, okay, tell it to me straight. We need to know. (laughs) Many of us, you know, maybe we've made some mistakes in relationships. Maybe we're fearful to be in relationships. Maybe we haven't gotten great examples from our own parents and others that we've seen in life. And so when we find folks who are walking it out and trusting God in the process, it's a real privilege for us. And uh, we were super interested when we found out there there was kind of a um, an audio resource that you had recorded that you titled Seven Things I Wish I Knew as a Newlywed. And that's always a fun thing for us because, again, here we are, most of the folks listening, you know, probably still single, though married, so we're listening. We love you, too. Um, you need to listen mm-hmm. and find out, like, what don't I know yet, even though I'm married? Okay, so mm-hmm. let's be honest. <laughs> but um, yeah. I want to kind of jump right in because uh, there are a lot of things here that almost can be set up as, like, certain myths that we hear, even within a church. And I think it's helpful for us to debunk some of those things. And, you know, sometimes they're couched in things that are very well-meaning. And so 
So the first one that I want you to tackle is this idea of individualism. And I think so often we talk about the idea of in marriage, in Christian marriage in particular, being one flesh. And we often overinterpret that to mean like, so you're going to lose yourself in the other person. And I remember one of my uh, counselor friends saying that he hates it when he goes to weddings and they do the unity candle. And after they light the candle, they blow out the individual candles like there went themselves. I don't know. They just Mm. lost themselves or whatever. And I thought that was so powerful uh, to think that through. And, you know, not that we need to diss every unity candle out there, you know, okay, whatever. Why do you think this sense of individualism and not like pioneer spirit, don't care what your spouse is talking about or whatever, but this idea of uh, being a, a person that is whole and complete as themselves. Why is that so important? And what does that actually look like? Yeah, that's such a great question, Lisa. And, you know, it's interesting because as a pastor, I get to officiate weddings. And I've never thought about the unity candle in that sense. I have not officiated an actual unity candle, uh, <laughs> you know, moment in the ceremony, although I grew up seeing many of them done. I know a lot of couples now opt for unity sand, and I actually just married a couple last month, and they had a sand ceremony, which I think is really exactly what we're talking about. You can still see the, the individual colors of the sand, but they're blending together to become something different. And I really believe that, you know, when we have that picture, that biblical picture of the two becoming one, you don't lose yourself to become one with someone. When I was a kid, my pastor used to say, the miracle of marriage is not one plus one equaling two, but it's one plus one equaling one. And I think that whole idea of becoming, it's a lifelong process. It's not something that you just become one at the altar, but it is a lifelong process of laying down your own selfish desires, laying down the way that you do things, laying down your opinions and and, you know, your your ways. A lot of times, especially, you know, think of people who've been single for their whole lives. If they're 30, 40 years old when they get married, there's a lot of practices that they have grown to love and appreciate and do. But when you get married, it's a selfless and it's a sacrificial and it is also an intentional process of becoming one with someone. But in that process, you still have to be you. I think that sometimes people think, when they get married, they need to please the other person. And my whole life is all about making you happy. And that doesn't usually work out because we were attracted to each other because we were ourselves. And so I always like to encourage couples when they come in for premarital that you remain you. Yes, you should grow. Yes, your partner is going to help refine you. They're going to help to grow and stretch you. But don't lose yourself. Don't lose yourself when you become a parent. Don't lose yourself when you become a spouse. Retain your your individualism because that is pleasing to God, I believe. You know, and again, it's it's this whole process. It's not like a one time thing. It's a lifelong thing that you will have to intentionally strive for. Yeah, and it's so important, and it almost seems like we tend to err on, you know, either extreme of the equation. Either someone goes into marriage thinking like this person is going to be you know, be my be all end all, or 
then they find that that's not the case. And then they start the blame game of like, well, you know, if it weren't for you, or if you hadn't done this, or you hadn't. (laughs) And so we have to be responsible for our own sin, our own decisions, our own issues, and realize that, you know, our, our spouse can't quote unquote, fix us. But also, you know, we need to find other ways to pour into ourselves as well. And I like the point that you make about keeping friends, you know, guys should Mm -hmm. have their guy friends, you can't just like gaze into one another's eyes, you know, your spouse's (laughs) eyes for the rest of your life, you're going to get super bored and, uh, you know, and your eyes will dry out. So, um, (laughs) so that's a that's a great point. Okay, I love how in that because again, there are a lot of relational building blocks uh, in this, you also talk about the importance of always giving the benefit of the doubt. You talk about how you you know, someone who was quoted as saying, refuse to be offended, believe the best, which I think so Mm -hmm. often I've said this when I've spoken with young adults about the idea of like, don't just jump to assuming motives. Don't just say, you know, we're all broken people. Sometimes people are going to say something, maybe it seems a little off, you know, lean in and listen. And, uh, you know, giving that benefit of the doubt is going to set you up for avoiding a world of hurt in so many ways, because a lot of times you can close yourself off if you're not being gracious and being able to do this. Now, I think this obviously this sets up the premise of, hello, newsflash, you are going to be offended in your marriage. So I don't know if you have an example. I'm sure that didn't happen with you and Sean. You guys have never had an argument or ever. (laughs) So (laughs) maybe you could share, you know, an example of a friend of where that happened and kind of how that played out to be able to give that space of grace. Oh, you know, we've been married for 23 years, so we've had plenty of plenty of practice um, <laughs> on offending each other and being offended. And I, I tell people, you know, you can be offended, but you don't have to take offense. Mm. And so I think that is one of the things that we are such an offendable society now with everything going on in our culture. People are so easily offended. And this is why marriage is God's discipleship tool. I believe it's one of his best not his only, but one of his best discipleship tools for us is because it teaches us how to not choose to be so easily offended. You know, I think that when you're married, it really magnifies how healthy you are as a person. If you're someone who you're constantly getting your feelings hurt, you're constantly getting disappointed, um, you're constantly feeling let down, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll put that on our spouse. You know, you're disappointing me. You're letting me down. You're offending me. But really, it's a mirror into your own health that you are someone who maybe you're a little too fragile. And so I know for me, uh, my husband and I have a wild story. And, uh, you know, I would love to share that maybe some other time. But we did have lots of trust issues in our marriage. So there was many, many, many opportunities that I had where I did not give the benefit of the doubt, where because I had trust issues, because I had been hurt in the past, my mind would automatically go to, he's doing something, you know, he's, and and we make up these pictures in our minds as humans. Like we don't just think the thought, but then we come up with all the pictures and the imagination gets going. And then what can happen is we can then indict our spouse before we've ever even given them the opportunity to give their perspective or give their side or give their point of view. And so I have become much more aware of that. And not just in the big things, but even in the small things, you know, your spouse comes home five minutes late. And instead of you thinking, man, you know, maybe they wanted to leave work early and they got, you know, called in by a boss, or maybe they got stopped by a traffic light or, you know, our minds go to the worst. 
that somehow they don't want to be with me or somehow they're out here doing something that they're not supposed to do. And so we come up with all of these grand ideas and these stories before we actually give grace. And I think that grace is, first of all, is something that we receive from Christ, right? Like we don't deserve it, but God gives it to us. And so because we've been given grace, we have to learn how to extend that grace. You know, we would say in our country that we're innocent until proven guilty, right? Mm. Unfortunately, in marriage, it's usually that you're guilty until you can prove to me that you're innocent. Mm. And I think that's the wrong way to go because then you start building up resentment and unforgiveness and walls toward each other. And grace, grace is the antithesis of all of that. Grace is going to be the thing that keeps you from becoming so easily offended. And it's also going to be the thing that helps you to forgive when forgiveness is needed. Yeah. Well, here's another great example um, of, of something that people get stuck on a lot. And that is this idea of what it looks like to uh, prioritize problem solving communication within your marriage itself, rather than taking in everyone else in your friend group, in your family, in your and making them all up in your business and having that be okay. Right. And you know, we often talk about this in the context of in laws, a lot of people don't realize, like they're, they're just like, you know, well, I went out to dinner with my future in laws, they seem like nice people, it's going to be cool. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> the rubber hits the road. And it's like, Oh, wait a minute, no, why is my husband listening to his parents instead of listening to me? So give us just a little bit of advice for how even, you know, even pre-marriage, we can kind of start recognizing that like, yeah, we've got to protect, we have to put a hedge around our marriage to say, you know, this person now has to be our priority. And we have to start working things out as a couple instead of letting the world not only speak in, but trump every decision that we have. Yeah, Lisa. I mean, absolutely. You know, when you get married, you have to protect your spouse's heart at all costs. And protecting your spouse's heart means that even if they're doing something that you don't like, even if they're disappointing you in some way, that there are certain things that remain private. I think there's a difference between private and secret. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if there's some sort of concerning issue, if someone is being abusive or um, there's a, a pattern of behavior that you need to seek outside help and do that. But most of the time, that's not the case. Most of the time, it's, we like to vent. You know, we want to get our friends on our side or our parents on our side, and we want people to see our perspective. And so we begin to spill out all of our marriage business to people who really don't belong in that space. And so, you know, and, and this is something, again, it, it's not something that you kind of master and then you're just good to go. Like, this is an intentional practice in marriage that when you offend, and again, we've already discussed that you will offend and you will be offended. When those things happen, the best person that you can go to first is the Lord. Absolutely. The Lord, even before yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, when I'm offended by my husband, Sean, I don't do this perfectly, but my goal is to say, Lord, check me. Where am I wrong here? Am I not seeing something? Am I being too um, defensive? Like, what is going on in me? Because, again, marriage is God's discipleship tool. So if there's a problem that's at play, could God be using that problem to make me more like him, to make me more loving, to make me more compassionate, to make me more gracious, or whatever it might be? And so that's the first place that we start, is going to the Lord. And oftentimes, that's the only place that you'll need to go because God will begin to reveal things to you about yourself. He'll begin to reveal things to you about yourself. 
Maybe you, you said something and you don't think it's a big deal, but God will begin to show you, well, actually, the way you said it triggered something in your spouse that they're not healed from. And so go to the Lord first. The second thing is go to your spouse. A lot of things, a lot of issues can be resolved in your marriage. And then if it cannot be, then I say go to a, an outside source that is neutral and that is someone who is either a mentor, a pastor, a coach, a counselor, someone like that. But to go to your friends, your friends are going to be subjective. Even if they tell you, oh, we're on both of your sides. No, they're not. If that's your husband's best friend, he is on your husband's side, okay? <laughs> if you are going to your best friend, she is on your side. So even though friends mean well, they're going to pick a side. Your parents are going to pick a side. And so I would say reserve those relationships for times that you might need prayer. And you don't have to go into a whole lot of detail. Just, hey, mom, you know, we're going through something right now. Can you just pray for us? Just, you know, would you just lift us up? That's it. That's all you have to say. Or even go into your friends, same thing. You know, hey, I just, I need some encouragement. Or, hey, I need some girl time. You don't even have to go into details. But, hey, you know, let's, let's go to the movies. Let's go out and just have some good girl time together without going into all the details. Just that friendship alone will be kind of an encouragement. But when it comes to, like, talking about problems and you know, and talking, especially when we start assigning motive to our spouse's behavior, we've got to be really, really careful about that because once you've forgiven your spouse, generally it takes that friend or that parent or whoever much longer to forgive your spouse and let it go. Hmm. That's good. Well, these next two, I mean, just for time, I'm going to combine the next two because I feel like they get to, one, the heart of attitudes and, and discontent that we can easily have in a relationship, and then really the the skill set that we need to be good communicators and to be honest with one another. Um, I'm actually going to take the, the second one first, where you talk about not comparing our relationship with anyone else's. And you have such a, um, a great quote that you used in this. I have never heard this before, and I feel like were I able to sew, I would stitch this on a pillow. Um, You said the grass isn't greener on the other side. The grass is greener where it's watered most. And that is so true about being intentional and investing in relationships and what it means to uh, get the benefits of a good marriage. You know, comparison is not going to help you. It's just going to allow you to become bitter and discontent. And so I want you to kind of allude to that. While I'm going to say an aside, the other point that you bring up about like, you need to be willing to say what you mean and mean what you say. And I feel like this Mm -hmm. is something where we kind of have to talk maybe to the ladies specifically here, because I think ladies can sometimes be a little bit of the offenders here when it comes to well, I gave him a look and he should have been able to pick up on that. Or I said something two months ago and he never did anything about it. Or, you know, and then the men are like, I need you to spell it out to me. They're like, what? (laughs) And so I think some of this could be, you know, personality. Some of it could just be the way the different genders relate to one another. But help us clear up some of the confusion of like how we can, again, not be hurtful in the way we relate to one another in this space. And then how it's best to say you can't be looking over at the other couple and say, well, they seem to communicate well. Why can't you be like him? Why can't you be like her? I mean, that's going to end up mm-hmm. in just a, a toxic downward spiral. Yeah. And can I say, Lisa, you know, why can't you be like me? You know, that's the thing yeah. that happens in marriage often is that we compare ourselves to us. 
Yeah. You know, well, I communicate this way, or if that would have happened to me, I would have done this. And it's like, okay, well, what's happening there? You're basically comparing your spouse to how you would do things. And again, that is where resentment builds is that my spouse isn't like me. Well, thank God they're not like you. You know, Mm -hmm. God placed you together mostly because you're not the same person. And so I think we've got to be so careful with, yes, comparing our marriages to other people, but we also have to realize that that comparison root is it's bound up in our hearts. It's something that's been happening since the beginning of time. I mean, think about in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had perfection. They were literally in paradise, and it still wasn't good enough. They still had to have something else. And so in marriage, oftentimes we will compare ourselves. You might have a great marriage, but then you see that commercial or we see a TV show. Oh, my gosh. You know, when I don't know if if people I'm sure people are familiar with the show. This is us. And, you know, Jack is like no man exists like Jack. Okay, but everyone's comparing their husbands now to Jack and they're 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 um, looking at how he parents his kids. and, And it's crazy. Like we do this so often and it just becomes like second nature. And so what we need to do is to stop looking on the other side of the fence and realize that if there are things that you want in your marriage, then say so. Talk about them, be vulnerable and be direct. And I would say whether it's the, the woman or whether it's the man, we can't read minds. You know, oftentimes we get married and we think, well, my spouse, they should know what I need or they should know what I want, but they might not know. And maybe they did know, but now you've changed and you didn't give them the memo that you changed. Mm -hmm. I've done that. You know, (laughs) my husband's like, well, I thought your favorite color was green. Well, a green hasn't been my favorite color in three years. He's like, but you never told me. I'm like, but you should see all the purple stuff around my room. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. you should know that by now. But that's something that we do. We assume so much instead of just saying, hey, hon, you know, I appreciate that green dress you bought me. But, you know, I'm not really into green that much anymore. I actually really love purple now. Mm -hmm. And, And that seems like such a silly example, but that is something that we have to be more intentional to do is to be direct. Um, and you can be direct without being rude or nasty, of course, but just letting your spouse know that's also a part of vulnerability is just letting your spouse know what you need, what you desire. And then again, doing it in a way that you don't pit yourself against your spouse. If your spouse doesn't catch on to things as quickly, don't say, well, I would have caught on to that. Mm-hmm. You know, I would have picked up on those cues. Because those things, they ebb away, they eat away. And it's not the huge, big things usually in marriages that destroy a marriage. It's these little things that kind of eat away, pick away at the marriage. And then before you know it, you're completely disconnected and completely resenting each other. Yeah. Well, it's so true. And again, this is such a great example of several of the points that you put in here of just being honest with one another, being open, being vulnerable, being willing to put it on the table. And uh, and again, there's so much health that comes out of that. I want you to finish by giving us a couple words on intentionality. And you do, in fact, talk about um, even intentionality. And one of your things is talking about like when you are married, you know, you should, as a couple, have lots of sex. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, now we have the collective cheer of all the singles who are listening, like, yay, you know, there's the end goal, whatever, you know, but, but yeah. even that couples can drift, couples can let that go, couples can be assumptive about stuff, everyone's going to have different expectations, and they're going to be hurt. And so again, you know, even using that as an example, I love how you talk about intention. Uh, so often, Dana, in the sense of, marriages that aren't intentional, where both parties are not 
putting in the time, putting in the energy, putting in the laying down oneself for the other, there is going to be a drift that you cannot prevent. And so I think it's so great, again, just to think of in Christ-likeness what it looks like to have the great conversations, be the person who's going to say, I'm going to study you. I'm going to be the person that that wants to cheer you on and be your best champion to moving you closer to the face of God even. And uh, are, is there any way, how would you say, for example, that you and Sean have been able to do this for one another? Well, I think the word intentional, I literally have it um, in my office. That word is is on my whiteboard. It is on my vision board. It is in several of my planners and notes. I mean, it's all around me. And I probably say that word at least 10 times a day, every day. It's something I'm so such a believer in because marriages on autopilot will drift and our natural state. A lot of people think the natural state of a marriage is toward connection, but the natural state of marriage is actually not toward connection. It's toward disconnection, which is why if you do not do intentional acts, you will find yourself completely disconnected. It's not something that you have to try to do. You know, you have to actually try to connect. You have to try to maintain your intimacy. And so just some practical things, I think, to help people with that that whole intentionality thing is definitely communication. Communicate often. Communicate your thoughts. Communicate your feelings. Communicate your desires. Like sometimes we think, oh, that's so small. I'm not going to mention that. Or No, like communicate. Talk about things. Share your life. That's something that, you know, especially if you have two professionals and you both got careers and you're doing great in your career and your spouse is doing great in their career and you're getting all these accolades from the people at work and then you come home and you don't share that part of yourselves together, that causes disconnection and it causes resentment because then you're like, well, my spouse doesn't think that I'm I'm great. You know, my spouse doesn't think that I'm successful, but it's because you're not opening up your life to your spouse in that way. So share every part of your lives together. And again, as you said earlier, it doesn't mean that your spouse is your only friend, and it doesn't mean that they have to be your end-all, be-all, cheerleader, supporter, encourager, and all of those things. But share your lives together. Prayer is another thing that's very intentional. Sean and I, we've kind of gone back and forth on the prayer thing. And you would think, because I'm a pastor, we pray together every single day. Not true. Um, (laughs) Not true. But it's something that we're striving to always improve upon. And there is nothing better than just, you know, it doesn't have to be an hour-long prayer. But just in the morning before we go to work, let's pray. Let's pray over our family. Let's pray over our day. Bless your spouse. Like, how powerful is that? When I can hear my husband saying, God, I bless Dana today. I bless the work of her hands. Like, that That just makes my day. And so those things, being intentional. And then, yes, sex. Sex is so—I could talk about this for hours. <laughs> Couldn't we all, so Dana? Cool. Couldn't we all? Yeah. <laughs> I, know, right? I know everyone's like, we do, but we won't. Um, <laughs> but sex is so much more than just a physical act. It bonds you. It is God's glue, as I like to say, for marriage. It's something that when you are intentional about that one thing, it covers the gamut. It ties you together spiritually, emotionally, socially, um, physically, obviously, and friendship-wise, you know. And so when you are not intentionally being intimate, and of course, intimacy is more than sex. It's, it's sharing your lives together. But when when we bypass the sex part, and then we're like, well, I want to be intimate in communication, or I want to hang out with my spouse all the time, but then you're not intimate in a physical way, 
then it, it, it really, for men, obviously, uh, they have a lot more um, challenges, for lack of a better word, in this way than women do. Sometimes women are not really um, aware of how important sex is to a man. And so, and, and I know that there are couples, even people who are listening right now, they're like, well, women like sex too, yes. But there are differences, you know, with how we relate to sex. But being intentional, and this is, again, a part of being married is not my will, but your will be done, Lord. Like, there's times that you're not going to want to have sex, newsflash, you know. Um, and even guys, I know, like, there's some men, like, no, like, there's no, I promise, like, there are going to be times that you just might not want to engage that way. And I'm not saying that couples should have sex every single day. If that's not what you and your spouse have decided on together, but, again, you have to talk about it. You can't assume that, oh, yeah, our sex life will be great. Well, have you talked about it? Have you talked about how often do you want to have sex? What's off limits? What's uh, on limits? What, you know, are there any limits? You know, like, what's fun? What's, you know, you have to, like, have those conversations. And I have a whole podcast episode dedicated to that specifically because there are so many married, married couples who never, ever, ever talk about their sex life. They just assume that it's going to be okay. And again, because they're not intentional, it ends up falling apart. So I think the umbrella word that I would use to intentionality is communication. Mm -hmm. You have to communicate often and you have to communicate consistently. For sure. Well, folks, there's more. I mean, Dana alluded to this. I want you to know of realrelationshiptalk.com, but also a link that we're going to provide to the Real Relationship Talk uh, with Dana Shea podcast. Uh, In fact, if you go to boundless.org, you can search for 757. That's this episode. You will see the link there. You can hop right over. This is a great resource for you to have, um, especially those of you who um, aspire to being married or are dating or engaged. I mean, this, this is the kind of stuff we've got to avail ourselves of. So we know how to go into this game with the right conversations in place, getting your mentors around you uh, to be able to continue the conversation. And so, uh, again, we'll go ahead and and make sure we direct you to that. Well, Dana, thank you so much. It's always fun to meet new friends and have folks out there that we know are just doing great things in the church and beyond to help young adults and others move towards relational wholeness and ultimately closer to the cross of Christ as we seek to glorify him. So just so appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much, Lisa, and thanks for all the work that you're doing, too, to help Christian couples and Christian singles, actually, to to be all that they can be as they anticipate marriage, if that's what God has for them. I really appreciate being here today. Well, thanks so much. Another day that I can't fake a smile. Another journey and another mile. In the shoes of a broken soul. Have you ever, ever felt so
Well, folks, we are finishing out the show, opening up our inbox, and as we often love to do, inviting one of our fantastic licensed professional counselors down here to answer the questions. So we have Jenny Coffey. Hey, Jenny. Hi. Good to have you. Thanks. All right. Um, Guy-girl dynamics. Yes. We're going to talk about this. One of our listeners is asking, I'm a 19-year-old female and work as an EMT. My job requires me to be in an ambulance for 10 hours a day with colleagues who are often male. Some people from my church have told me that they don't think the job is appropriate for a woman because it often requires me to be unsupervised with a male for long hours. However, they were unable to back up their opinions with scripture. So I'm curious, what's your opinion on jobs that require males and females to work alone together? Does scripture discourage it? Mm, That is a tough one. Mm -hmm. I mean, instantly, my first thought is the idea that why is it that because she's a woman, she's the one that's supposed to mm-hmm. be held accountable in a different way, right? Uh-huh. Um, now, I do appreciate the question. I think if it was being said to her in a more broad way, like what does this look like for you to be in these male-female dynamics constantly, mm-hmm. I think maybe she would have been able to receive it or actually be able to discern in her heart, okay, what does that mean for her? Mm-hmm. But of course, I think the way this is phrased kind of puts on the defensive, unfortunately, and that might be how she's feeling a little bit. But um I don't think there's necessarily anything scripturally. The other, the big question I would ask first is to say, did anything that these people said resonate with something that was already in her heart? Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer, and I do believe that's scriptural, and the idea of when other Christians speak into our lives that um, – well, there's obviously always people that have a higher influence over us, right? Mm-hmm. And they might be able to point out things we haven't thought about. Mm-hmm. But being careful who we let influence us and discern for us in those ways. And so I guess that would be the question is, what is the level of influence that, that these people or person has over you? And are they maybe identifying something that you're unaware of? Mm-hmm. If that's not the case, then looking at it and saying, is this something that the Lord's kind of already impressed upon my heart? Like, hey, this isn't a great situation. You know, um, I, I kind of feel uneasy about it. Then that's something for her to look at more. Mm-hmm. But what I wonder is if this is something that like she really was proud of herself, loved her job. I mean, to be able to be doing that at 19 is pretty great. And mm-hmm. she's found a career and a path for herself. And what I hope is that these comments didn't steal her joy in that. So that would be my encouragement at first is to say, this is something that needs to be between her and the Lord. So if the Lord has kind of put that on and these people's comments just reemphasize that, that's a different story. Mm -hmm. But if she felt a great peace and a happiness about this, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of sucked, been sucked out, um, she can still take a step back and say, are there pieces of this I need to be aware of? Yeah. How can I put up healthy boundaries? Yeah. How can I position myself in a way because it's similar to a first responder world, which is typically very male and mm-hmm. um, abrasive in mm-hmm. a lot of ways? Mm-hmm. How can she position herself as a Christian woman in that situation? Yeah. But it doesn't have to be the black or white, like you either can do the job or you can't. Yeah. That's interesting because I thought even the other angle of this is the whole, the assumption, exactly what you just said, Jenny, that she's just going to be one of the guys. And a lot of women right. don't like to be put in that position either. Mm-hmm. And it can start trending like that where you may feel taken for granted or you may feel like, oh, man, am I like, what what does this look like? Because this is kind of starting to rub me the wrong way yeah, in the right. way that I'm being perceived mm-hmm. in the way. And so I think, yes, you know, what you said is is good of just all of us need to be constantly 
humble in the way that we receive feedback, and we need to be looking for ways to both in our actions and in our hearts be accountable and um, always be thinking of that, never assuming like, oh, I got this or this isn't going to be a problem or whatever, because the minute you don't think it is, it probably will be. Exactly. (laughs) Especially because she's young. Yeah, yeah, Uh yeah. Um, But that said, yes, definitely seek godly counsel. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, look, like Jenny said, who who are your counselors? Get it from multiple sources and differing sources. And then move ahead and um, and and look for ways to maybe infuse um, some of your own accountability into exactly. it as well and ask right. for that in a way that you know is appropriate. So, right. Yeah, it's thoughts. definitely not about a lack of accountability. It's just yeah. it doesn't have to look black or white like you're either can stay in the job or you have to leave. But yeah, definitely put up that accountability. Yeah. Thanks so much. All right, folks. Well, that's it for this week's show. We do want to hear from you. So write to us at editor at boundless.org and we can answer your question most likely in the future. Of course, if you hop over to boundless.org, you will see questions that we've answered in the past and you can even search uh, maybe for something that you're looking for and get some wisdom there. Otherwise, I will see you around next week. This is Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family. Do you ever wonder what it was like to meet Jesus face to face? The miracles, the teachings, the long-awaited Messiah in the flesh. It's all in a new novel by Focus on the Family called The Chosen, I Have Called You by Name, based on the hit streaming series. Immerse yourself in first century Galilee. Experience the Savior through the eyes of his followers. You'll want to dive deeper into scripture with every page turn. Learn more about The Chosen novel at focusonthefamily.com slash chosen. That's focusonthefamily.com slash chosen.